And while they're doing that, uh, I'm going to introduce our, our guest preacher today. Uh, Ronnie is down in Wichita preaching for his son's church down there for Father's Day. They invited him. So to fill in, we have asked Ty Zimmerman to speak in his place, and he's prepared a message for us. So appreciate Ty willing to do that. And uh, yeah. Sweet. Thank you, Eric. Good morning, church. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Thankful to fill the pulpit uh, this morning. If you haven't been with us lately, we have been journeying through the book of Acts for the last couple of months. Ronnie and Matt have both preached through Acts. The last couple of weeks, Ronnie has preached through Acts chapter 6. And if you remember, we were introduced to a man named Stephen, right, who was a deacon in the early church. And the writer of Acts, Luke, makes it a point to say that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And the last week, if you remember, in chapter 6, he is accused uh, by this religious Jewish council of speaking against the law of Moses and speaking against the temple. And so they bring him to trial, basically, in Acts chapter 6. And so in chapter 7 today that we're digging into, we basically get a picture of Stephen's response to this council. Now, I've been given all of chapter 7, which is 60 verses. Uh, ain't no way we're going verse by verse right in detail like I would like to do. So here's what I would love to do this morning. I want to give you an overview of the first kind of 50 verses, kind of a snapshot of what Stephen is communicating, and then we'll kind of focus in or hone in our time on the last 10 or so, okay? And I would highly encourage you, if you've never studied through Acts 7, take what we, we go through this morning and go back this week and, and study through it. I think it's one of the most powerful examples of spirit-filled witnessing that we have recorded in Scripture, right? And this, remember, as Ronnie mentioned the last couple of weeks, this is coming from a guy who's not a pastor, right? He's a deacon, he was a deacon in the early church, and so he didn't prepare his sermon notes all week and get up in front of a church and, and preach this sermon. He is facing uh, imminent death from this religious council and just puts on display, how, how I think, how the Holy Spirit uses his people to accomplish his work. And so Stephen is brought in for questioning. I want to give you a picture, a visual of what this would have looked like for him. Uh, this is what was called the Hall of Hewn Stones. It was a place in the temple. It was a meeting place for this religious council, for the Sanhedrin. This is where they would make official rulings on religious matters. So if someone would be accused of breaking Jewish law, this is where they would have been brought um, to, to give a defense or a response to the accusations. And again, in this case, Stephen is accused of speaking against the law of Moses and against the temple. And as you can see, right, it's kind of split in two. It's a semicircle. The religious leaders, there's 70 of them, 35 on one side. 35 on the other with the high priest sitting right in the middle and the man accused had to stand in front of him and give his response with the students of the religious leaders standing right behind them. So kind of have that picture in your mind as we go through this chapter this morning. So he starts his defense in verse two, okay? And he preaches somewhat of a mini sermon as he kind of systematically walks through the Old Testament, okay? He references Abraham, Back in Genesis and how God appeared to Abraham in a pagan land and promised him numerous offspring and promised him the promised land as his inheritance. He moves through the Old Testament, references Joseph later on in the book of Genesis, right? Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt and God raised him up in a, in a high position in the, the, the court of Pharaoh and used him to accomplish his purpose. He then goes on to reference Moses, right? And Moses, how he called Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity, and then Joshua, how Joshua led the conquest into the promised land, and then he kind of finishes up by referencing David 
and Solomon and how they planned and built the temple. And so he kind of gives a 10,000 foot overview, if you will, of the Old Testament. And he really, in these first 50 verses, really focuses on two main themes. Okay, as he's standing before this religious council, he confronts them with a pattern of disobedience that the Israelites showed throughout the Old Testament. They, they continued to rebel and turn away from God. Okay, and secondly, he kind of confronts their obsession with man-made objects of worship. Okay? And in this case, specifically, their focus on the temple, because remember, he was being accused of speaking against the temple. Because his point, like Ronnie mentioned last week, is look, God has never been confined to a building, right? Never been confined to a building. He used Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and all these instances happened in different places before the temple was even built. And so his whole point is, man, these religious leaders, look, your whole Old Testament, which was the canon that the Jews possessed, the whole Old Testament from the law and the prophets, from Genesis to Malachi, the whole thing points to Jesus, amen? The whole thing, the very Messiah whom you reject and you're missing it, right? And this is what really, for me personally, brought the scriptures to life a handful of years ago when I started studying through the Old Testament and seeing pictures of Jesus and references to Jesus. Because today people make the comments sometimes like the Old Testament is not that important. Let's dismiss it or let's unhitch from the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. If you're a Christian, it's because of the Old Testament. Amen? Right? Our origin is not in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Our origin is in Genesis 1. So I think, man, Christians should be submersed and saturated in the Old Testament. I think it's obvious Stephen was submersed in the Old Testament scriptures. He saw the connection in the Old Testament to Jesus, the Messiah, all right? And that's what he's putting on display here. He's like, man, you're accusing me of speaking against the law of Moses and speaking against the temple, and you guys don't even understand what these things mean. Right? All of it points to Jesus, the Messiah, whom you have rejected, okay? I know that's a quick Overview of the first 50 verses. Take that, go back and study it this week. Let's focus on the last 10. I'm gonna pick up in verse 51, okay? And I think we're gonna see three things this morning, three things I wanna highlight for us in Stephen's response. I think we see, firstly, a call to repentance. I think, secondly, we're gonna see a sign of rejection. And thirdly, a clear reward, okay? Repentance, rejection, and reward. Look at verse 51, you stiff-necked people. What a way to finish out a sermon, huh? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not Keep it, right? Stiff-necked carries with it this idea of being stubborn or headstrong. Okay? The term was originally used to describe like an ox. Think of an ox that refused to be directed by the farmer's yoke. Right? So an ox or an animal that refused to be directed in such a way was referred to as stiff-necked. Right? So a stiff-necked person or an animal refuses to take direction. It's used only once in the New Testament here in Stephen's response, but it's repeated multiple times in the Old Testament describing the rebellious nature 
of the Israelites, how they refused to repent and to turn back to Yahweh. So think about these 71 guys standing in front of him, foaming at the mouth as he's saying this. They would have understood the reference, right? And as I think about this, you know, Jesus says, what he said, come to me, right? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I think Stephen calling them stiff neck like an ox is like, man, you refuse to take Jesus's yoke upon you, right? You were rebellious just like your fathers. And then he says, that's not enough. He says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears, all right? But this would have really riled him up because in the Jewish mind, it was the pagan sinful Gentiles that were the ones that were uncircumcised, right? So Stephen references this earlier when talking about Abraham in the first part of his response, how he was given the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision was held near and dear to the Jewish people because it was that outward sign of being a part of the covenant people. And so, man, Stephen tells them essentially, you're physically, un- uh, physically circumcised. You've done this outward religious ceremony, but your heart is still dead in sin. Your, st- your ears are still deaf to the truth. You have rejected Jesus, and therefore you are not truly his covenant people. Think about how they would have heard those words from Stephen, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Two phrases that I think would have cut right at the heart of the Jewish leaders and exposed their sin before God. Right, their sin of trusting their outward religious works and actions, yet with hearts unconverted to Jesus. And listen, church, this reality with the religious council surrounding Stephen is no different today. It's no different today. I mean, we could talk about the dangers of atheism, right, of all out rejecting God. We see that on display in our culture, right? Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. See a lot of foolishness on display in our culture. There's some danger there. But man, I think the most dangerous state that you can be in is having an outwardly religious life with a heart that remains unconverted to Jesus. That's a dangerous spot. Just like this religious council, they did outwardly religious things and then their minds followed these religious laws and they read and they memorized and they taught the very scriptures that testified about Jesus the Messiah whom they rejected. Think about that reality. It's no different today. It's no different today. The wide road to destruction is filled with outwardly religious people. Because outward religion is comfortable, right? I just show up, get my spiritual contribution once a week. I show up in the church building or the door and drop my money in the bucket, do my good deed. I follow these sacraments or these things and check them off my list. I can just continue doing these outward things while remaining unchanged inwardly at a heart level. I think that's comfortable to the mind, right? It seems to quench the conscious for a time, especially in our culture where really, really morals has declined big time. So outward religion is comforting because it's like, hey, I'm doing the moral thing here. Man, it leads to destruction, right? That kind of mindset leads to destruction. There will be many people in hell who were circumcised outwardly that remained uncircumcised at heart. Just like there would be many people in hell that were members of a church that were not truly members of the body of Christ. Right? Just like there would be many people in hell that were baptized as babies or got in the water but that weren't truly baptized into Christ. 
Just like there were many people in hell who were born into the church but weren't truly born again. Right, this mindset of these religious leaders is alive and well today. And so Stephen exposes it. He exposes their sin. He calls them to repentance. You know, as Charles Spurgeon said, commenting on this passage, I love this quote. He says, Stephen takes the sharp knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people, laying open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their soul. Oh, I love that. He takes the sharp knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people. Look at verse 52 again. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Right? This was basically Israel's pattern throughout the Old Testament. There were some periods of obedience and some bright spots for sure. But man, time and time again, the prophets were rejected and they were killed by their own people. And Stephen's point as he's standing in front of these 71 religious people, like you're the same. You are the exact same, right? You are rebels who have rejected God. You put Jesus on trial and condemned him to die. You were guilty before God. He says in verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The Jewish council, their problem was they didn't understand the law was given not to help them become righteous. The law was given to expose their unrighteousness before God and help them to see their need of a savior. I think this is what Paul's getting at in Galatians chapter three when he speaks of the purpose of the law. He said, man, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This is where the religious leaders were blind. If we could follow a law and become righteous, it would, it, would, it would be by our own righteousness, our own obedience. He said, man, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, that's all of us, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And he says, so then, the law was our guardian. The law was our guardian in order that we may be justified by what? By faith. Right, so when, when God's law comes in and says, thou shall not lie and thou shall not steal and thou shall not dishonor your parents, our reaction shouldn't be like the rich young ruler. Oh, I'm good, right? All these I've kept since my youth. No, our reaction should be like the tax collector. Oh no, I am guilty before God, right? God have mercy on me, a sinner, Right, because it's in recognizing my problem of sin before God that I'm led to the sin atoning solution of Jesus at the cross. Right, so remember, they accuse him of speaking against the law in chapter six, and here in his defense, he's saying, look, you don't even keep the law. You don't even keep it, you have broken it. You have violated it, right? And the one who died to pay the penalty of you breaking the law is the very one whom you deny. Think about that condemnation. You're blind, right? You have, you have missed it. You have missed it. And that danger, church, is alive and well today. It's alive and well today. The, the modern feel-good message in much of American Christianity, I put that in air quotes for a reason, wants to say, hey, don't talk about sin. Let's not talk about judgment. Let's talk, not talk about hell. It's gonna offend people and turn people away. But I think the modern church would look at Stephen and say, hey, Stephen, you're kind of being a little judgmental here. 
Right, Stephen, why don't you just tell them God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Why don't you just tell them, close your eyes and play, pray the sinner's prayer? I think Stephen would say, no, you don't get it. Unless you preach the reality of people's condemnation before God because of your sin, you will never understand the glory of the cross. You'll never understand it. We must preach repentance, amen? We must preach repentance. So then think about it. Stephen starts out building some rapport with him. Hey, you remember Moses and Abraham and our father Jacob and David? And then he exposes their sin before God. You stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're a lawbreaker. Stephen is calling them to repent. He's calling them to repent. And what's, what's the reaction that we see from these outwardly religious Jewish leaders? Verse 54, and now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. The ESV says enraged, but the word literally means they were cut to the heart. This counsel was cut to the heart and Stephen's spirit-filled preaching. It's the same phrase that Luke uses back in chapter five, if you remember, that we looked at a few weeks ago. Remember, Ronnie was preaching on that. They bring the apostles in. They say, hey, we commanded you to stop preaching Jesus. And they say, we're obeying God, not man, right? And in Acts 5, verse 33, it says, when the council heard this, same council, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Same thing, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. I mean, what's interesting is that this is probably at least the third time this religious council heard the gospel boldly proclaimed to them, at least the third time, the third time we have it recorded, right? Because it was back in chapter four, in chapter five, here in chapter seven. And more than likely, this is probably, because this is not too long after Jesus' death and resurrection, this is probably the same council that put Jesus on trial, right? That crucified him. The high priest that's mentioned back in verse one is probably Caiaphas, who, if you remember, handed Jesus over. I mean, God is showing abundant patience and mercy with these Jewish leaders by allowing them to continue to hear the truth that they might be saved. And instead of humbling themselves before God, instead of coming to repentance, it says they were enraged. <laughs> they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Think about that picture. Some translations say they gnashed their teeth at him. They gnashed their teeth at him. It's this picture of like jaws clenched, teeth like grinding together, like uncontrollably lashing out. And church, where else do we see this uh, phrase, gnashing of teeth? Where else do we see that in the New Testament? Got it, right? When Jesus speaks of the realities of hell. Right? Same similar Greek verb here, Matthew 8. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, speaking of hell. Matthew 13, 24, 25, mentioned in the Gospel of Luke as well. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So think about this picture. The council's response to the truth about Jesus that Stephen shares here is a limited picture of the eternal realities of hell. Because ultimately, they're not lashing out at Stephen per se, right? They're lashing out at Jesus in him. Jesus is the target. In a sobering reality, I think if, if these men died without coming to repentance, this is their reality right now, still lashing out, still gnashing their teeth at God. So this Jewish council 
is enraged. They gnash their teeth. Where ultimately, I think, where, where does this rejection from them come from? I think it's found back in verse 51, if you look at it. Again, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the who? The Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. I mean, we could do a whole sermon, right, on the Holy Spirit's role in the life of a believer, right? We could do a whole sermon on that. He comforts us. He teaches us the truth. He convicts us of sin, leads us in righteousness. He comforts me. He gives me, gives me the boldness to speak the truth like Stephen here. Right, but even before conversion, the Holy Spirit is the one drawing people to faith in Christ, right? Jesus said back in John 16, as he's departing and giving them this promise, he said the Holy Spirit would come, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who pricks the hearts of people and exposes their sin so they may turn to a saving faith in the Messiah. I would simply say the Father calls the sinner, right? The Holy Spirit draws the sinner to be able to see the Son who saves the sinner. And so think about that. To reject the work of the Holy Spirit is to literally reject salvation. This is what we see here with this council as they ultimately reject the Holy Spirit that would bring them to a saving faith in Jesus. Here's what one commentator said about the different ways that believers and non-believers can reject the Holy Spirit. I think this quote is spot on. It says, there are three ways in which the Holy Spirit can be opposed. He can be grieved, he can be quenched, and he can be resisted. Only a spirit-indwelt believer can grieve the Holy Spirit. That word grieve is a love word, right? We, we can only grieve someone who loves us and who stands in a special relationship to us. A church can quench the Holy Spirit by allowing men to usurp his authority, by refusing to follow his leading, or by permitting false doctrine or moral evil to take root. We see a lot of that today, right? But sinners resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen now dropped his defense and went boldly to the attack, vilifying his listeners for their persistent and continuing opposition to God. Their chief sin was that of resisting the Holy Spirit. Their treatment of the saviors, the scriptures, and the sanctuaries God had given them, and above all, their treatment of the Son of God constituted a persistent sin against the Holy Ghost. I think that is spot on. If you are here today, hear me. If you are here today apart from Jesus, do not resist the Holy Spirit. Do not resist the conscience that has been laid upon you to reveal your sin and your need for him. Do not put it off. Do not put it off. I tell people all the time, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no neutrality. Many people have the mindset, like, I respect that my wife has a strong faith, or my kids, or you know, my friend over here, but it's not really for me. Look, there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You either have him or you don't. It's either repentance or rejection. No in between. Right? And we've seen both of these realities. If you've been here as we've been journeying through Acts, we've seen both of these realities in Acts, haven't we? I mean, Acts chapter two, Peter preaches and it says what? The crowd was what? Cut to the heart. And their response was, brothers, what must we do? Right? And they repented and turned to Jesus. Acts chapter five here with the council, Acts chapter seven, they were cut to the heart. Their response was rage and rejection. 
It's a picture of the two realities. You're in one of those two groups. And no middle ground. And scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. So we see a clear rejection. And lastly, we see a clear reward. Verse 55, let's walk through this, the last six verses or so. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Right, what a contrast here, right? Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. This religious mob was full of rage. Verse 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as one commentator pointed out, the Bible always mentions that Jesus is seated at the right hand, right? Because his work is finished. He no longer has to stand and work. He's seated at the right hand of God. But here he's standing, almost as if to welcome Stephen. Almost as if to welcome Stephen and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. What a picture. Like, like Stephen is acknowledging him before men and he's about to acknowledge him before the Father. I think that's beautiful. But what does his counsel do? They cried out, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Right, so they become enraged as he exposes their sin. But what really sets them over the top and ultimately leads them to a mob-like stoning is the reminder that Jesus is at the right hand of God, that he is Lord, right? Because remember, Jesus proclaimed this very thing as he stood before this very council, right, before his, before his crucifixion. Back in Mark chapter 14, remember the council asked him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He says, I am. And what did he say? I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. This council, I think, is being reminded of this truth. You think you pronounce judgment upon Jesus, but he has risen, and you will have to answer to him. And this sends them completely over the top. They don't want to hear it, and sends them into a frenzy to execute this mob justice. Jewish law would have required them to wait. I think it was like 24 hours to, to, to finish out this pronouncement, this, this, this stoning, but they can't wait. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Right, this, they would have pushed him off probably like a 10-foot ledge. If he didn't die, they would have thrown a rock on top of him, on his chest. If he didn't die then, they would have just kept piling rocks on top of him. Complete mob justice. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As many of you know, this is the Apostle Paul, right? This is the Apostle Paul before he becomes a Christian. Ronnie will preach on his conversion here in chapter nine. And man, I think much of the writing that we have in the New Testament from Paul is influenced by what he's witnessing here from Stephen. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. What a picture. And when he said this, he fell asleep. You know, a week and a half ago, I uh, was out at Solomon Camp with the high schoolers. We were, we were going through the book of Ruth for four days together, and we talked about the importance of 
stepping back and zooming out when we're reading and studying through Scripture. Right? I can be studying this specific passage, but I need to step back. Right? I need to learn to zoom out, step back and see God's overall plan and purpose and how Scripture fits together as a whole. Amen? Right? I need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. I need to zoom out. Because it's easy in this case to look directly at Stephen being stoned here and think, man, what a tragedy. Right? What a tragedy. A young man's life cut short who could have done great things for the kingdom of God. But as a church, as we step back, as we zoom out, we see that, man, God used Stephen Stoning as the catalyst for the world being reached with the gospel. I mean, think back with me to Acts chapter one when we started this journey a couple months ago, right? If you remember, the risen Jesus is with his disciples before his conversion or before his ascension. And in verse eight, he gives them both a promise and a command. You guys remember this? Acts 1.8. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These first seven chapters, they are camped out in Jerusalem. They're preaching Jesus. So much so that back in chapter five, as the council is, or the apostles before the council, they said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So Jerusalem, right as we speak, as we're reading this, is being filled with the gospel. Conversions are happening. People are coming to faith in Christ. But what about the rest of the command? Right, Stephen is martyred. In fact, we get our English word martyr from the Greek word martus, which is the word for witness. So he's being a literal witness here. He's martyred, he's killed. And in chapter eight, which I know Ronnie will get into next week, so I'm not gonna get into this, only touch on this just to set him up. It says, after Stephen was stoned, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 8.1. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. I mean, the command and promise back in chapter one is being fulfilled right now. And it's initiated by what, by what a lot of people would consider a tragedy. A young man full of the Holy Spirit cut down by a religious mob no, man, as we zoom out, as we step back, this was the catalyst for the Gentile world receiving the gospel. I think we could argue that there is no Paul the apostle without Stephen the deacon. And he was rewarded for his life of faith. He received the crown of glory. So what do we do with this, church? I mean, if you're, if you're like me, as I'm reading through this, 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 this last week or so, you, you probably feel somewhat of a disconnect here in reading a passage like this because we really know nothing about this type of persecution in America, right? I mean, all of us are called to, to count the cost of following Jesus and that cost is gonna look different depending on your own context. Sometimes it's social pushback from friends or sometimes, unfortunately, it's family members. Sometimes it's a, you know, at your workplace. But for us, like when I share the gospel with people, I'm not afraid that they're gonna pick up stones and stone me. All right. There are some parts of the world where that's a case right now, but not, but, but not here. So what do we do with a passage like this? I think one of the best things for me, at least, has been reading the accounts of my 
Christian brothers and sisters who have become martyrs for the faith throughout history. It's deeply impacted me. One, because I think for me it puts things into perspective as I follow Jesus in 21st century America. It gives me boldness to push through any type of pushback I get here and now. And and, and secondly, I think reading these accounts really reinforces a biblical understanding of of persecution. I I can continue to see how God uses earthly tragedies like this for eternal good. And that gospel continues moving forward. So I want to recommend a book to you if you have not read it yet. I tried to get it up on the screen. The picture wasn't working, but it's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, it's a Christian classic. Some of you may have read this before. I read this uh, last year, and it's one of the most impactful books that I have read uh, before. John Fox lived in the 1500s during the time of the Reformation, and he compiled a list basically of the martyrs from the time of Stephen to his day. And, and this newest edition, they've updated it to, to the 21st century. And so let me just share just a couple snippets from it. You'll read, you know, the first extensive persecution of Christians by Emperor Nero not too long after Stephen gets stoned here, right? How many of our Christian brothers and sisters were tied up and literally lit on fire. You'll read about the 10,000 or so martyrs in the second century, many of whom were crowned with thorns, were crucified and had spears thrust through their sides in a cruel imitation of Jesus' death. And then you'll get into the time of the Reformation and read about a guy named George Wishart in the 1500s who was burned at the stake for speaking out, out against the, the heresies of Roman Catholicism. And they quote him as saying, right before his death, for the word's sake and the true gospel which was given to me by the grace of God, I will suffer this day at the hands of men, not sorrowfully, but with a glad heart. I do not fear this grim fire. I know surely my soul shall dine this night with my Savior, Jesus Christ. You cannot read stuff like this without getting impacted. And then you'll read, you know, even in our era, in the 2000s, the account of a lady named Rose in Nigeria. Her husband was a pastor. He was killed by a Muslim mob for his faith in Jesus. And it mentions how Rose draw great comfort from the scriptures, especially the book of Acts as we're reading through. And it quotes her as saying this, the same God that allowed Stephen to be stoned allowed Peter to escape from prison. It's like God has been faithful and his grace is sufficient for me. Man, I would highly recommend getting this book and reading through these accounts, There's countless other stories, thousands of these stories throughout, century, throughout the centuries and I would encourage you to read through it. Be emboldened, man, in your own faith here in the 21st century America and see how, man, God's kingdom has continued to advance despite man's opposition. Amen? I can't think of a better way uh, to go into our communion time. So let's get that um, bread and, and juice out. You know, ultimately, Stephen's martyrdom here points us Back on? Back on. All right. Ultimately, I think Stephen's martyrdom points us to Jesus' death and resurrection at the cross uh, for our sin. And um, this is a time for us to remember that. Um, Do not take this lightly. Do not take this lightly. This is a chance for us to uh, proclaim that Jesus has died and rose, that his body was broken for us.
and to proclaim that, man, he's the Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again to judge. So let's take that bread, which represents his body, and partake of it together. Remove that top layer. Scripture says, man, the blood of animals is not sufficient to atone for our sin, right? Only the blood of Jesus. So let's remember that together.